Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but thankfully, there's been more and more research of autism around the world. This has been part and thanks to the work of the Global Autism Public Health Initiative, or GAF, which was started in 2007 by Autism Speak and led by Andy Schur. Andy and his team literally travel across the world, helping countries set up research programs, surveillance studies, and of course, services. This was a need first identified by Suzanne Wright at Autism Speaks. She was the one that worked with, at the time, the country of Qatar to establish the first World Autism Awareness Day. I'd be remiss if I let Autism Awareness Month come and go without first mentioning it and also acknowledging the role that Autism Speaks and Suzanne had in establishing it. Regardless of how you feel about Autism Speaks or the rights, they are part of the reason why autism is a part of our vocabulary, why people can talk about differences in disabilities, and why there's now autism awareness and acceptance. Part of the research across the world has been done in understanding the prevalence of autism in different countries. Most of the research done so far in autism in, say, genetics has been done in white people, and that needs to change. Research across the world will help better understand and identify risk factors, both genetic and environmental, in different races and different ethnicities. It also gives us a clue on cultural factors. Based on the work of Richard Grinker, we know that culture plays a big role in the way autism is interpreted, seen, valued, and diagnosed in different countries. There's also the added, you know, moral issue, ensuring that what is learned in the U.S. is shared more broadly with the rest of the world. As screening and diagnostic tools are translated into different languages, it's important for comparison across multiple cultures to be done. Now, screening tools like the MCHAT and the Child Behavior Checklist have been translated, and these base rates have been calculated. A base rate is what percent of children with autism score on a particular question or set of questions compared to those without autism. If it's a high base rate, it means the item was marked despite what the mental issue is, ADHD, OCD, or other psychopathology. For example, on the MCHAC, question nine has a high base rate in the United States. That question is, does your child ever bring objects over to you to share? But question 23 seems to have a higher base rate in Italy, which means does your child seem more sensitive to noise? This is seen in multiple disorders, so it's not exactly specific. The authors of the current study that I want to talk about focus on the Child Behavior Checklist, or CBCL, because, well, they wrote it, and they have data from over 19,000 preschoolers with and without autism from 24 different countries and societies around the world, and they can make comparisons about base rates. These societies ranged from Iceland, Iran, Italy, of course, the United States, South Korea, the Netherlands, all the way to the Philippines. One thing about the CBCL is that it can be used by parents and clinicians. You can also look at the differences on how parents rate items and teachers rate items across societies. Unlike the MCHAT, which is given in 16 to 30 month olds, the CBCL can be given up to age five, which is when kids enter kindergarten. So there's a little bit more room to get information about teacher, caregiver, or other people that interact with that child. Ratings between parents and clinicians may be different. For example, teachers may be more aware of parents of externalizing behaviors that disrupt a classroom, whereas parents may be more attuned to internalizing problems like anxiety or depression. Across mental issues, concordance is about 30%, which means parents and teachers or caregivers rate the same item the same way about 30% of the time.
Now, two parents and two teachers are actually more likely to agree rather than a parent to a teacher. In a recent study, these researchers asked how similar are the mean item ratings for the DSM-ASD scale across societies. So they took the CBCL and identified questions that are specific to autism and looked at those questions only. Also, how similar are autism-based rate items across societies? What are the effects of society, gender, and age group on autism scores and scale scores? How well do parents and teachers in each society agree on these 12 ASD items within the CBCL? Now, all these things will help better understand cultural and societal differences that may make a difference when researchers consider on how best to identify autism in different countries. Plus, looking at what is autism in different societies and what is more common across different mental disorders is inherently interesting. Rather than go through each country and where they were similar and different, the study more aimed to figure out which items were similar across countries that parents marked versus which ones were more similar that teachers marked, and then whether those items were different in general across countries. The results found higher agreement in parents than teachers. In fact, the agreement across societies was kind of high for four items, and I'll tell you what those items are in a minute despite the fact that these 24 societies differed in ethnicity, religion, political economic system, population size, and geographic region. There was less similarity with respect to items that caregivers and teachers seemed to rate in many of the societies. Now, why is that? The authors suggest that this is because of the differences across societies in school and daycare settings rather than family settings across our societies. So families are actually more similar across societies than schools are. Now, these school differences include things like teacher-student ratio, classroom structure, length of sessions, and program philosophy. Different societies are also likely to differ regarding selection factors affecting which children attend early childhood programs. Hell, those differ for each state here in the United States, so you can imagine how it differs across the world. All these things together may make a difference in how autism is identified. So what were the four items that were most strongly linked to autism across societies? They were, and these were the questions, presence of strange behavior, repeatedly rocks head or body, seems unresponsive to affection, and withdrawn doesn't get involved with others. Now here are the four items that were not so specific to autism across cultures and societies. So these are the ones that had the high base rate. Everybody was answering these regardless of what their diagnosis was. Doesn't answer when people talk to him or her. Can't stand having things out of place. Disturbed by any change in routine. And avoids looking others in the eye. Overall, they actually found more differences in the items within different societies than between them, despite many societal differences, again, in geography, ethnicity, political and economic system and religion. These few questions within the CBCL that targeted autism perform similarly across societies. Base rate and mean ratings of the 12 items were more similar across societies for parent ratings, again, than for teacher ratings. So what does all this mean? So with all due respect, the authors of the CBCL may use this to say the CBCL should be used as a primary screener across the world. But the way I choose to interpret it is that there's are some key features of autism that are termed what is called omnicultural, as in seen across societies. Those are those four items with low base rates. 
These may need to be focused on in newer measures and to understand differences across cultures and countries. These may be at what the core of autism is. And the differences between parent and teacher caregiver agreements may be a headache for psychometricians, but it actually means that both perspective of the parent and and teacher must be included. And this is something, I'm sorry, but clinicians have been saying forever, and now we see it across the world. Now, in another study, are there other ways that parents of kids with autism are similar rather than in just what they endorse as autism behavior? Yes, in the United States, parents can be grouped together in a way that they utilize treatments. As it turns out, if you take a bunch of parents who utilize different treatments and then you put all of their treatments in a bowl and how they use them, they end up into primarily six categories. Now, these six categories don't mean that they're absolute, but it means that they fit well into these categories. So the first category is classic plus. These are parents that use mostly private and school speech and occupational therapies. So those are the classic therapies, but they use private and school. The second is high utilizers. Now they use nearly all treatment types. This includes medical, it includes complementary and alternative, it includes school-based, it includes private. The other is school plus, which was mostly speech and occupational therapies, plus intensive behavioral treatments, but little medication use. There were the privatizers who used private therapies almost exclusively. And this is an interesting group and we'll talk about why. The medicators primarily use psychotropic medications, and school-limited means that they only use school-based therapies. Now, why is it important to group them together? When I first read the study, I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting, but why is this important? Well, first of all, not everyone has the same access to all sorts of treatments. So one question is, does the economic status of the family have anything to do with what services parents are able to obtain or the ones that they choose to go to? Remember, the school ones or school limited are cheaper than private therapies, and this may lend insight into how we can adjust the disparities in access to care across economic groups. Also, things like level of functioning may predict who gets into what group and particular symptoms. So what was it? What, how did parents end up in these different groups? First, those in the groups labeled high utilizers, nearly the ones that use all treatment types, and School Plus, which use mostly speech and occupational therapies, plus a little bit of intense behavioral and other treatments, but little medication use. Those two groups were the ones whose parents reported having seen regression and also whose kids have lower IQ. Now, they may be perceived as needing more services, which I'll get to later. With regards to income, those in the lowest income categories were most likely to be medicators. The lowest income category were the least likely to get private services, not surprising, or anything involving intense behavioral interventions. I was actually surprised by this. I thought that the lowest income group would be the school only because those are the ones that are offered free through IDEA, not the case. It was the middle income families that were most likely to use school only services. So let's talk about those medicators. While medication was used in all groups, remember this isn't absolute, it's general. The groups were grouped together by likelihood and not absolute rules. So the medicators were unlikely to have tried any other intervention than medication, but again, that wasn't a hard and fast absolute. It's hard to interpret this, and the study didn't include insurance coverage. Hopefully that will happen in the next area of analysis. 
A recent study out of South Carolina, however, did find that early behavioral intervention was slightly less accessed by Hispanic families compared to non-Hispanic families. Now, that's a cultural, not an economic comparison, but I'm just pointing it out to show that this is a very multifaceted, complex issue. And while those in the low SES category are more likely to be medicators, the reasons why really can't be determined in this study. What concerns me, though, is the intersection of the groups. Those with low IQ and perceived skill loss were more likely to utilize multiple treatments and go outside of the school to add on to the services received, presumably because their symptoms may be perceived as more severe due to the lower cognitive ability. But my concern was what about those who are low SES and have those with low IQ and perceived skill loss? What were they doing? Are they missing out on certain treatments? Also discussed in this article was the role of cognitive and academic ability in the services that are eligible for school services. So IQ may play a role in the perceived need of services. I'm not arguing that at all. But it doesn't actually map on to what they're actually getting. Those in the school plus and the high utilizers were more likely to have children with low IQ. However, the IQ of children from those that received only school-based interventions were similar to those that had only private-based interventions and the medicators, so they were equally distributed. So let's look at some of those groups. One that can only get them from the school and then ones that only get them from costly private facilities. Now, what's going on here? If the IQs and the abilities and the academic challenges are about the same, why are some only getting medication and why are some going to private costly facilities? I would have assumed that the privatizers were the ones that had the higher need for additional services. However, privatizers are the ones not getting school-based services, maybe because they're not eligible. Some kids may not fit into what the school perceives as needs, and parents are forced to find other solutions. So it's not just based on economic need. It may be that some parents are forced to go outside the school system because their kids don't just like fit into this kind of mold of what is available for school-based interventions. And in overworked, well-meaning school districts, they can only provide what they can provide. So parents have to go outside the school system. It's also possible that children from the school-only group who are eligible for school-based support required fewer types of outside supplemental services because the school-based services were working. They were able to show greater behavioral competence compared to children with more impairments, those that were in the school plus class. It's also possible that the variability in how quote-unquote educational need is conceptualized is different across different sites, which does need to be looked at further. This study does intersect on how similar parents approach services to each other and why they group together, but it also points out some unique features about why parents pursue certain services, why they may or may not be eligible for them, and what they can afford. Thanks for listening this week. Next week is the International Society for Autism Research Meeting. Stay tuned for a summary of what was there, what was new, what was hot, and what were the new findings, what researchers are focusing on, and how they can help families with ASD. Now, you can do this by keeping an eye on the ASF Facebook page for constant updates. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon.